to be here and Austin, we are so excited that you're here. Um, I just wanted to start by giving a little bit of context for this format. Um, so as Pastor Kevin mentioned, a group of us at Spark have been involved in what we've been calling crucial conversations around race and racial reconciliation. Um, most recently, we used Austin's book to guide that discussion. And as I'm sure you can imagine just by the fabulous intro, those discussions were uncomfortable and sometimes awkward. Um, and we saw the transformative nature of just how important it is to push past that awkwardness and engage in dialogue that not only helped us tackle the issue in a very real way, but also enabled us to be stronger as a community. So the three of us on stage have been a part of that group. And so what we wanted to do tonight was model that type of conversation that we would have in our small groups with Austin here, asking her some of the questions that came up. And not because we believe Austin has all of the answers to represent all black people in America. That's really important. <laughs> just That's not the goal. But the reason why we're excited to engage in this dialogue with her is because she was able to write a piece of work that, as she said, has resonated with so many of us because not only was it compassionate, but it was brutally honest, and it forced us to be honest as well with each other. So we were only able to have the honest dialogue because we did it in a space where we committed to honesty and grace. And I just want to say that because that is so important in terms of having these conversations is being able to do both. Um, so with that said, I'm just going to go ahead and dive right in. You said we could be real, so we're going to be real tonight. Um, the first two topics that caused the most conversation were nice white people and white fragility. Shocking. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, to get us started, I'm going to have Alyssa and Dan chime in as well. But um, to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about what those two topics are? Sure. So a lot of white folks believe that if they're just nice, racism will be solved. It got real quiet again. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Thank you. <laughs> um, par particularly in, in Christianity, right? So I'm not sure that it's honestly specific to Christianity, but certain our, our love for the word love. Let's just love one another. Love trumps hate. Can't we all just, just get along? Let's, y'all, does that sound familiar? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? And so there's this deep belief that if you're not actively hating someone, um, if you are at least going to lunch every now and again, if you've got one black friend, that you must be doing something right. Hello? And um, both of those chapters are one about how fragile I have discovered that niceness is. That niceness may not last long. And two, that niceness is not going to get us to racial justice. That's true. That's true. All right, let's do it. <laughs> Just with nice white people. Um, so that chapter in your book, I think, resonated the most with me. And I know that because I spent the whole chapter just kind of grimacing through it, like, oh, I'm such a nice white person. <laughs> you told um, an anecdote in the book about um, a coworker who came up to you during a work retreat and said, um, I noticed that you're the only person of color here. I wanted to know if you were okay. Right. And you wrote that you felt compelled to be nice back to the nice white person, um, but you wish you could have been honest and said, like, I'm always aware of my color and this is not an isolated incident. 
So I resonate with that story a lot because I could see myself doing something similar and I don't know what her motivations were, sure. but I could see myself doing something like that so that you secretly could hear the message that I am more aware than your average white person or I'm not one of those white people that doesn't get that there's racial injustice in the world. And in the end, then, the conversation is all about me and you accepting me. Um, and so I was hoping you could comment on those dynamics and um, what impact it has on you. Yeah, this, um, this happens a lot. I, I, if I had to give it a term, I would call it performative, right? So it's a white person trying to perform racial justice rather than actually embody racial justice. Um, and essentially, it's still rooted in white supremacy, right? It's still rooted in the desire to be the best, to be uh, the one who's right, to be the one who is everyone else should be following, right? It's, it's, it's actually not a humble state to begin the work of racial justice from. It is a desire to say, look at me, where are my ally cookies? I want cookies. Give me a sticker, give me a gold star, give me something, because I have recognized that you are human and that race is real. Well, you don't get no cookies for that. That you recognize that I'm human and that race is real? And so what it does is, just as you said, it puts, um, it puts a, an additional weight on the person of color. Because now, particularly again in a Christian context, what I look like saying, girl, I'm always the black person around here. Now I'm rude. Uh-huh. Right? Now I'm defensive, now I'm um, intimidating, now I'm angry, now I'm not being gracious enough, now I'm not being patient enough, now I'm not, right? And so that performance requires that I participate in the theater of racial justice. Instead of her saying to me, this is what she could have said, she could have said, ooh, Austin, this place is entirely white. And so is our team. Does that feel awkward for you? Do you often feel like aware? Does this space feel just like the space that we're in every day? Now that would have been a question about me, right? And it would have been a question that acknowledges the racial injustice in the place where we are. But instead, it was localized to this one experience as if it is experience that is any different from the one I share with her every day. Um, so to me, I, I see a lot of connections between white fragility and nice white people yes. are kind of protecting themselves. Mm -hmm. And actually, I, mean, I have a story that I wanted to share, but um, I feel like it's worth mentioning that for any white people out there that felt a little uncomfortable with Austin's like opening talk and like, oh, she's just talking to people of color and like, there's this thing against the white people, like that's your white fragility. <laughs> even though I feel like, I even feel like I'm now so much more aware of my white fragility and I'm just like, oh man, like, why do I have to be a white person? <laughs> um, 
related to fertility and get your thoughts on sure. it. Um, so my closest friend Dana is somewhere out there. Um, <laughs> so we've been friends for a long time. She's Chinese American. Um, we've known each other for over 15 years. We've been in each other's weddings. Um, it goes back a long way. Um, so we often talk about issues of social justice. And I often feel like my thing is an international development, like I've worked in there in that space mm -hmm. for a long time, and then I felt like Dana's thing was race dynamics in America. And we both are you know, very interested in, and care about both topics and we discuss them, um, but I think that's kind of how I compartmentalized it. So the 2016 election rolls around, and so we are politically aligned. Um, I was shocked by the outcomes, and Dana was not shocked by the outcomes. And I was very sad that I went into this mode of like, I need to figure out what happened and what I don't understand, and kind of this like, the fix it somehow. And Dana was in like a grief mode because the implications were um, more personal to her and her kids. Um, and so I think that it was in that moment that Dana wanted to convey to me that race dynamics in America were not her thing, they were her life and her everyday experience and that they couldn't not be my thing as long as I am a white person and whiteness is supreme. They need to be my thing. Um, so, she sent me all the articles on all the things. <laughs> all the things whiteness. She sent you a starter pack. that person who happened, the author happens to be black, I think that, that um, she's got like some really amazing points and I just feel like so many people would relate to her if she just didn't sound so angry. Then I would get an article in response about tone policing. <laughs> so in those following two days, we exchanged 19 emails before wow. we could meet face to face. Um, and I definitely, I think because of our relationship, I felt, um, I felt the hurt because I'm a nice white person. Like, I'm aware. Um, and so I could feel that in terms of my white fragility, but I think I kind of added on another layer um, of fragility in that I wanted to process the things that I was reading. So even if I was in agreement with something, it was like, oh, this is interesting, but what about in this context? And, and these are still things that were very personal to Dana's life and experience. Um, and so she's in a place where um, she doesn't have a whole lot of emotional bandwidth, and yet I'm asking this of her in my processing. Right. Um, and if you're a person of color that has experienced oppression, then you, it shouldn't be your burden to have to educate the white people about all of these things. Yeah. Right. So um, she, regardless of that, walked through it with me. Yeah. Um, and I think that the reason that she's willing to do that continually is because of the depth of our relationship. But I realized that not everybody is coming from that kind of um, history. And so what, is, what does it look like then? Like, what do those conversations look like? And maybe more specifically, um, for people of color, like how do you protect yourself from white fragility? And for white people, how do you address white fragility in yourselves and in other people around you? Yeah, that's a loaded question. <laughs> okay, um, so, so white fragility, um, there are a lot of definitions for white fragility, but essentially it's how white folks are very uncomfortable with race, talking about race, okay? 
um, and it's the desire to escape as quickly and expeditiously as possible. Um, whether that is through argumentation, whether that's by getting up and leaving, whether that's by saying, well, what about this context over here? Whether, right, it is the desire to um, recreate the comfort or get back to the comfort that you were experiencing before anybody brought up race. That's what white fragility is, okay? Um, so the question, how do people of color protect themselves from white fragility? Um, we can't. I think the question is, how do we heal from white fragility, right? Because um, we don't, one, we don't always know when white fragility is gonna pop up, right? So we stand in a circle talking about, uh, I can't wait to go see Black Panther. And all of a sudden, here come a white person. I'm like, what? Can we just talk about Black Panther without you? Right? So we don't always know when white fragility is going to come. Um, workplaces, right? Um, One thing that black women experience a lot in their workplaces is black people experience a lot. Maybe other people of color too. I don't want to speak for everyone. Um, but is the question, why don't you just come to lunch with us? Maybe you don't like, oh, see, I got a deep breath over there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Don't, you, don't you like us? Why don't you? Why don't you like us? Don't you want to come to lunch with us? And black women's like, listen, I spend all day with y'all. <laughs> Now I can be alone with YouTube, or I can call a girlfriend, or I could play this really great sermon, or I could listen to some gospel music. There are lots of things I could be doing. But because I have hurt the feelings of white folks who want to be my friend, now I have to be attuned to those feelings, right? Um, what happened with your friendship is highly unusual. It's highly unusual. Because usually what happens when a person of color says, if you really want to be my friend, you're going to have to step up your game on this. White person is like, deuces. <laughs> right? So that first article comes, and then there's no response. The article never even gets read. It never gets opened. Maybe it gets opened. And then it's like my book, which the first sentence of my book is, <clears throat> white people can be exhausting. Y'all can imagine a whole lot of folks didn't make it past the first sentence. <laughs> a whole lot of people just didn't flip the page. But that happens a lot. That's white fragility. It's a desire to not have my equilibrium, my worldview disrupted, because ultimately that's what's on the table. To understand race in America is to have your entire worldview turned upside down. And that is frightening. Um, often what happens in cross-racial friendships is the white person is friends with the, I'm just gonna keep going back to black person, but y'all substitute, okay? White person is friends with black person. Black person would not call white person friend. Can I tell the truth? Now, black person might say, really friendly coworker, really great pastor, really kind teacher, but would not use the word friend. 
This is because there are so many white folks who wouldn't be able to have that conversation. There are so many white folks for whom race is an interesting thing, is a thing that we occasionally read about, is a thing that we're aware of, but is not intimately connected to who I am and to my life. And that prevents friendship. It means you're only gonna know so much about me, you're only gonna know so much about my thoughts, you're only gonna know so much about what's happening in my home. You're only gonna know so much about the conversations I'm having with my family. Like there, there is a wall that must be built, that must be built. White fragility prevents white people from acknowledging the full depth of people of color in all of our humanness and the ways that we have to navigate America as different, as different. And white fragility does not allow white people to hear about those differences. So what I often tell people of color, this is great in your story, is I often say, send an article. If you wanna test whether or not white person is ready, send a real good article and see if they respond. See if they're willing to engage with it. If they are, send a book, okay? Mine is an option. I would say ta Coates is another option, right? There's lots of books on race, y'all. Plenty of them. We're not lacking books on race. So slide that on across the table. Does it get read? Right? But we do often have to test the waters of friendship before we can dive in. It is not safe to dive in. And, and there are a lot of white folks who think they have people of color as friends and do not. Because people of color can't be honest about their whole lives. And I don't know what kind of friendship that is. Was there a part that I didn't answer? No, it's important, go for it. So can it, can it happen? Can it work? Like, how does it, how does it work for that friendship to ultimately happen? Like, if it's even possible? Yeah. Um, when it's not coming from a place of decades of, yeah. of being friends. Yeah, that's good. Ooh, just from, boy, that's good. Just from what you described, I thought, like, I can never be friends with a person of color. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, oh, that person is not actually able to trust you. Right. Like, how does that trust yeah, that credibility has to be built. And what people of color are ultimately looking for is how you respond, whether or not you are educated to the things that become national news that are impacting me internally. So when I, I am in conversation, so let's say I'm at church and I'm in conversation with someone and I am talking about how pissed I am that George Zimmerman is still walking the streets, right? If a white person comes up to me and says, you know, I heard about that story, and you know, I mean, obviously he was wrong, but don't you think Trayvon should have dot, dot, dot? We ain't friends. <laughs> and you might be nice, and I will be polite. I am not gonna send you hate mail, like, but in the back of my mind, I am going, you are not safe. You don't get to know about the conversations that I have to have with my son. 
You don't get to know about how I'm afraid when my husband leaves the house that he may not come back home. You don't get to know about how I never leave my house without my ID in case something goes real wrong and I need to prove who I am. You don't get to know. So white folks have to be okay with the fact that in the minds of people of color, you are not superior and you got to do some work to prove that you can be trusted. And white folks are not used to having to earn somebody's trust. White folks are used to just getting trust, getting respect. But if the desire is friendship, if that's the desire, then white folks are going to have to go on the journey of being willing to release fragility. Because it can be done. You did it, right? You, and then you got the next article, and then you read it. And then you got the next article and you read it. And instead of canceling the coffee date, you went to coffee and you said, this is someone I care about. And because I care about, I am going to stay in this place of discomfort until I understand her life. That's friendship. That's friendship. I want to understand her life. And the fact that it makes me uncomfortable is irrelevant. Oh, well, I guess I'm just going to be uncomfortable for a while. And here's the truth, it gets easier. It gets easier in some ways. So you will actually be able to have all kinds of people of color as friends because you don't have to relearn the information, right? There's not like new information. Like once you've got it, you've got it. <laughs> Y'all know what I mean? Like genocide, enslavement, Jim Crow, right? Like once you got it, you got it, right? And then all the other systems make sense. And so you're not starting from the beginning with every single person. You are starting from a foundation of credibility. So it can be done, but it has to be done intentionally. Awesome. That's, that's actually a good segue into another topic yes. that's probably most resonated with me, which is creative anger. Mm -hmm. um, the reason why it resonated with me is because uh, growing up in a pretty conservative Christian background, I've always felt like everything you're saying right now, I've wanted to say, but it can't. Yeah, it's <laughs> because um, as a broader church, we, we prioritize um, being peacemakers and being slow to anger. So I've always felt like there's this like Christian side of me, and then there's this black side of me, and this dual identity that I've always had to balance. That's right. Um, and so that's that's really challenging, and I feel like what you were able to do was articulate um, not only that anger can be positive, used effectively, but also um, that in the Christian context, there's a place for it. And so I, I mean, I can talk all day about what this means, but just an example, mm -hmm. everything you're saying, I want to be like, yes, but like I hold myself back, right? right. Like, I'm, I'm so conditioned to being very conscious of how I'm going to be received yes. um, and how my white friends might be like, oh no, she feels like this, oh no, what do we do now, you know? And I'm like, it's hard because I also want to be compassionate, yeah. right? And meet them where they are and really understand that, you know, people really are trying, but at the end of the day, I'm still split in yeah. these two people. Yeah. Um, so with that said, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about what Create Anger is yeah. and how do you use it effectively, especially being true to yourself. Yeah. Um, so when I first started doing this work, I was very concerned about white people. White people were, were like my standard, in fact, for whether or not I was doing well. So if I could like get a white woman to cry, I'd be like, score. <laughs> I am changing lives. <laughs> right? 
because that's what I was told was acceptable, right? So if I cut myself and I bleed all over the place and I prove that I am human and I tell my sad stories and that manages to get a white person's attention, if that breaks through all the fragility, then I have accomplished something. And then I got real pissed because of all things related to Black Lives Matter. And I realized, I realized that I believe God is just as angry as I am. And that changed everything for me. When I believed, not believed, but when I just hadn't thought about it, hadn't questioned this unspoken belief that maybe God isn't angry about racial injustice, then that made it optional. And that didn't create space for me to be angry, right? If God is like feeling cool, calm, and collected, then I guess I ought to be feeling cool, calm, and collected too, right? But if God is angry, if God thinks that this injustice is horrendous, if God, um, if God believes black lives matter, then anger is the only right response. Right? And then I discovered something real interesting, friends. I looked back, I haven't taken down one blog post that I've ever written, okay? There is a marked difference between the first blog post I was writing and the ones I started writing during Black Lives Matter. Y'all, the first ones were all like teachable and they were like the starter pack. <laughs> They were like, here's, here's a way to look at this. Here's an opportunity, right? Black Lives Matter happens, and I'm like, look! <laughs> I'm sick of this, <laughs> right? I realized that I was getting far more feedback on the things I was writing when I was angry than the things I was writing when I was trying to be nice and calm and all the things. It was my anger that was moving people. It was my anger that was cutting through the noise. It was my anger that was challenging people. And I read um, Audre Lorde's Sister Outsider during this season, and she has a um, chapter or an essay called The Creative Uses of Anger. And in the middle of that essay, Audre Lorde says, anger is neither inherently negative or positive. Anger is just anger. It's an emotion. And you have to decide what to do with that. And it can be an incredible force for good, or it could be an incredible force for destruction. But simply to feel angry is neither bad nor good. And that was a revelation for me, that I get to decide what to do with my anger. And as I looked back over history, I think sometimes when we think about history, um, particularly when it comes to people of color, we always paint pe folks in the past as gracious, patient, right? MLK Jr., right? Who just apparently had all the patience in the world for white folks, right? Didn't think a white person had ever done nothing wrong. Um, and we remove from history anger as a driving factor. But I'm pretty sure it took a whole, I was almost cursed, it took a whole lot of anger for folks to stay off that bus for however long during the Montgomery bus boycott. I'm pretty sure it took a whole lot of anger. Right? 
We often paint Rosa Parks as someone who was just tired. She was just tired. That woman was over it is what she was. That woman said, not today. Not today, Satan, not today. That's what she said, not today, right? But all of these major movements for justice, we subtract out of it anger as if anger wasn't one of the driving forces that created change. And I have decided that I'm going to put anger back in. I'm gonna put it back in. I'm not gonna pretend that I'm not angry that Trayvon Martin is gone. I'm not gonna pretend that I'm not angry that Mike Brown died in the middle of the street. I'm not gonna pretend that I'm not angry that Tamir Rice lost his life at 10 in a play yard. I'm just not gonna pretend. And I shouldn't have to. You shouldn't have to sit back here and think, hmm, all the white people who I like, but maybe wouldn't yet call friends, are gonna be real confused when they see me raise my hand like I'm in a black church. You just shouldn't have to. And that is what I mean by our dignity suffers because of whiteness. Because it means I have to be small, I have to conform, I have to make people feel comfortable, and I don't want to be asked too many questions because you're not safe yet. I just started getting multiple messages on Twitter <laughs> of black women who are like, Austin, this book is fantastic, but I want you to know I have to read it in secret because I don't want all the white people to ask me what I'm reading. And that's what they're trying to say, right? They're trying to say that this book is life-giving, but if other white folks start realizing that this is me in this book, now I gotta answer all these questions that aren't safe to answer. So we have to figure out where can we be creative with our anger? Because oftentimes that's not in the workplace and that's not in the church, it ought to be. And if you wanna move forward racial justice in your church, that would be a real good place to start. I want to hear how angry you are. There should be a session somewhere where black men and women, and listen, all people of color, because everybody got something going on right now in this political era, should be able to go into the basement and y'all should just have like stacks of dishes where people of color can just be like, wham! <laughs> Travel ban, wham! <laughs> all lives matter, wham! <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I think it would probably be really refreshing for people of color to see some white folks get mad over racial injustice. Um, what can be done with it? Um, it? It will vary from person to person, right? And so for me, it was writing. It was writing angry. I think for a lot of artists, it's going to be painting angry. It's going to be speaking angry. It's going to be taking risks when it's your time to give the sermon. It's going to be uh, suggesting a book club. It's going to be hoping that people will be angry with you, right? I don't think there's any one right way to be angry. And white folks would suggest otherwise. In many instances would say, sure, you can be angry, but you got to be angry like this. And I think people of color have to take our power back and say, I realize that would make you more comfortable, but this is how it feels authentic for me to create out of anger. And that's what I'm going to do. And, um, you know, the whole point of all this, to your point, is really just being on that journey towards racial reconciliation, right? And it takes a lot of hard work, and it starts with the dialogue, it doesn't end there. So 
um, one thing we have all been talking about in our group is what is true racial reconciliation? Child, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> if y'all figure it out, please send me an email. So we have some questions around that. So jump in? Yes, sir. All right. Um, so the old white guy's got it all figured out, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, so actually, um, honestly, no. So um, one of the things that really stood out and resonated in the book for me, your book, was the fact that um, res reconciliation needs to be more than just dialogue. Right. And the other, um, the other point you made, I'm going to read it because I thought it was so well sure. said, is dialogue is productive toward reconciliation only when it leads to action. Only when it inverts power. Only when it pursues justice right. for those of the most marginalized. And um, so for me, um, I want to take action. Um, but I also know I'm the old white guy. Um, I want to, so I think my tendency is to want to organize and to lead and coordinate. That, that's just kind of a lot of of who I am and my chemistry and what drives me. But I, I'm he I hesitate because I know in doing that and stepping into that, I often um, perpetuate the same system, the same structure of power and influence. I'm looking through the same lens. A lot of things we've talked about tonight, I'm, I'm, I'm um, insensitive to and don't appreciate. So there's that hesitancy and reluctance, that conflict. Yeah. And perhaps a, a great or, or a good example to share is just when Ann and I joined our church, or um, I felt myself in that same mode. Yeah. And jump, wanting to jump in and find areas that needed leadership and help. Um, but I thought, here I am, the old white guy, just perpetuating the same thing. And how am I inverting power. Right. How am I really um, being part of the solution towards that versus just perpetuating the same system? Mm -hmm. And I think for me, um, even in, just in, in the community and doing social justice and being involved in different things, I find myself struggling with the same question and um, feeling like um, I am just doing the same paternalistic thing, the, uh, invoking the, the, the white savior right. syndrome that right. I think is so prevalent mm -hmm. as a, I don't want to keep emphasizing the old part of the white guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, so I have a couple questions and thoughts. And one is just, so how, how do, how do you see white people enter in um, to reconciliation with solidarity and sensitivity and some of the things we've been talking about tonight. Um, and then the second part of it, maybe more broadly, is just together, how do we pursue, enter into um, reconciliation and pursuing justice? And how, maybe another way of saying it's like, um, 
What are some of the attitudes mm-hmm. and actions um, that uh, you can comment on, share with us that um, really do promote sure. true justice? Sure. Um, so, uh, okay, all white folks who are struggling with their fragility right now, hang on to your socks, okay? <laughs> um, White folks are gonna have to get used to being treated like people of color. Because people of color struggle with this every damn day. Where we are bigger, badder, smarter, more intellectual, more educated, more magical than everybody else on the team and we still gotta fit in this little box right here. Hello somebody. On a regular basis, people of color in your workplaces, in your organizations, in your church could do more, could be more, are incredible organizers, incredible speakers, incredible writers, incredible musicians, and yet they have been regulated to be in the custodian and that's what they're going to do. Hello? White folks are going to have to get used to maybe being bigger and better than the position calls for and still being in that position because a black woman says so. A black woman said, that's what we need you to clean the floors. Could you do that for me? We need you to vacuum. Y'all got real quiet. Could you do that for me? Right? It's that, it, it, because otherwise it is perpetuating, right? So let me give a, um, a real specific example of what this looks like. So. Uh, and I'm gonna be like super general, way too general, okay? But I'm just for clarity's sake. You walk into a white church and the white church is gonna sing four songs. They're gonna have a 20 minute sermon. They're gonna have an offering. They're gonna sing one more song, everybody going home, right? Real clear. And, and just to be funny, they gonna write it all down just in case anyone's confused. <laughs> Like that was complicated. <laughs> but just to make sure everybody knows, there are exactly four songs. And here's what the four songs are. We have chosen them in advance, right? You, and that feels very orderly, very clear. Everybody knows what's happening. Y'all with me? Walk into a black church. <clears throat> we gonna sing three and a half songs and then circle back to the first song and then go back to the second song and then we go and remix all four songs <laughs> in order to create something new and then Sister Johnson is going to fall out and the nurses are going to come get her and then the worship leaders are going to transition us from the worship songs to the sermon and then the pastor is going to say some words but then there's going to be a sermon that follows the words and then there might be a follow-up to the sermon of the sermon and then we're going to open up the doors of the church and then we're going to sing a few more songs depending on how many people walk down that aisle and we're going to do some altar calls and that may or may not last half an hour 45 minutes depending on who get happy in the middle of the altar call and right that feels real disorderly to someone who doesn't know it. Y'all with me? That feels like chaos, okay? Why are people running around this church? There's like laps, like what is, 
what is happening? This feels chaotic, right? Why are people talking in the middle of the sermon? Can we all just listen to the sermon? Maybe it would be done in 20 minutes if we would stop talking back. Maybe we're the problem. Maybe it's, okay, y'all get the point. My point is, here's what would happen. And a, a black person going to the white church would never, ever say, y'all doing this real weird. This is, let me help you out. Let me go get on that organ and show y'all how this could be done. Let me, let, me sh- let me show you what you're missing. But white folks will walk into a black space and be like, oh, let me help you with this. Y'all with me? The black church is not disorganized. There is nothing wrong happening there. There is nothing that needs to be fixed. It has been working for generations. And if you went long enough, you would see the beauty and the pattern in what is happening and realize there is nothing chaotic about what is happening. Hello? But this happens all the time in justice spaces, friends, where there are black folks who are gathered and white folks look in and go, ooh, here's where I could help, instead of waiting to be told where they can help. Now I know that makes y'all real uncomfortable, but that's because it's inverted power. That's why that feels so uncomfortable because white folks are not in almost any context used to being told what to do from a person of color. And it's a whole lot of mediocre white folks who got a position they didn't really earn, uh, who maybe think they're more gifted than they actually are. And person of color is saying, you ain't ready for that. You ain't ready to be the speaker yet. I know some people have told you that you're gifted, but you don't do it like we do it, and so I'm gonna need for you to have a seat. Could you write a check? That would be great. (laughs) Right? But white folks generally, are not used to inversion of power. They're not used to, being, to waiting and asking, what can I do to be of service to you? How can I help? What can I do? Yes, I will happily vacuum those floors. Give me the vacuum. Yes, I will happily put that mailing together. Where are the stamps? Can I pay for them? Yes. I will happily be behind the scenes. Yes, yes I will. I will do whatever it takes to be a part of this movement, including being in the back. That's what this work takes. And part of that isn't just to like kill ego, right? It is so that the, um, oh, let me see if I can get my words right here. It is a particular experience being a person of color in America. And there are very few places where white folks experience what it's like to be a person of color in America. There are very few places where white folks aren't in the majority, for example. Like, let's, 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 let's keep it really simple. The amount of work it would take for a black person to be in an all-black room in Silicon Valley. Y'all talk to me. Now, I'm not from here, but y'all tell me. 
I'm guessing that would not be the easiest thing to pull off. <laughs> Say it again. Hello. Hello. White, there, most white folks have no idea what that's like. Have no idea what it's like to maybe see one other white person an entire day. To take orders from white folks every day. To have a performance review that's going to be written by a white person every day. That's a real life experience. And when white folks decide that's an unfair experience, I'm going to put myself in a place where it is not assumed that I'm the best, where I will be asked to do things that normally I would consider below me or too educated for me or whatever. You are choosing to experience black life, black with a little b, black life in America. Because that's what we do. Can I tell y'all something real, real that's gonna make me sound crazy arrogant, but I'm just gonna be honest that that's how I felt. Y'all, there was this one place that I was working for and I was working on my master's degree, which would have made me the most educated person in the building. And the day that they asked me if I would go fill all the toilet paper things in the bathrooms, I called my husband. And I wish I could tell y'all that I was like angry, but the truth is I was crying. I was on that phone crying. Because I realized that even though I was the most educated person in the room, it did not matter. I was young, female, and black, and that is what they were always going to ask me to do. If white folks really want to know what it's, going, what it's like to be a person of color, if they want to connect with the survival that we are enduring on a daily basis, it is going to require you figuring out how you can invert your own position of power and whether or not you are willing to do so when the opportunity, opportunity, opportunity arises to say I am not superior just because I am white and I will happily and humbly assist in this thing called racial justice and that will be my legacy to my children. That would be powerful. Where is this being done well? I don't know. We, look, has anybody turned on the news lately? The truth is no one is doing this perfectly, right? But there are organizations that are taking steps. And what steps your organization takes will be different for everybody. So there's a university um, in the South, Christian University in the South, who just decided that they were going to remove themselves from the denomination they've been a part of for like 100 years, very conservative denomination, y'all probably know which one, um, and decided that they are going to take a stand on LGBTQ and allow faculty and staff to serve, even if they're LGBTQ. So even saying that sentence felt really weird, even if, whatever. Um, um, but that's, that was, for them, that was the beginning of justice, right? It was saying no to this denomination that we have been a part of forever so that we can take a different theological stand on what it is that we're doing and therefore invite an increase of diversity. 
Um, there are organizations that are working on changing their boards because they have been all white for far too long. And they are determined either to become 50-50, 50% people of color, 50% white, or entirely people of color, because if it can be all white for generations, surely it could be people of color for a couple generations, right? Um, changing funding priorities, right? Changing staffing, changing how you pay staff. So maybe your staff doesn't change, but black women start getting paid more, holla, right? Um, so, so there are a number of ways that folks are trying. Um, I just heard, uh, I don't want to call the wrong school, so there's one school in New England um, who just traced, it, traced the roots back to their own uh, participation in slavery, found the family who is still living in America today, and, and said, we want to send the whole family, everybody who's still living, come here for free. Y'all, that ain't no small thing. Now, it don't fix all of slavery, right? <laughs> right? But to say, here is our participation in it, and here is how we monetarily benefited. Now, let me do what I can to make reparations to give that money back to its direct descendants. That is huge. Do y'all know what would happen in America if every company said, this was our participation in slavery, we're going to get that money back? Uh-huh, right? So, so I say that only to say that there are a number of creative ways that churches and organizations, colleges um, are, are, are trying to invert power, are trying to be a part of racial justice, are trying to figure out racial reconciliation. To be perfectly honest, friends, I think this is incredible that five churches would come together to have this discussion on race instead of having like a black choir up here singing that would make us all feel great. This is incredible. So what happens out of this next? Maybe instead of having me, it's all of you. It's people in the community. It's someone who is Korean and someone who is black and someone who is LGBTQ all saying, here's my experience of America. Maybe that's what's next. Maybe what's next is a church saying, here's what we care about. We care about education. So now we're gonna look at education and race right here or criminal justice, or health, or any number, you throw a rock and hit a racial issue, right? But if you guys could be committed to it as a church, what changes could be made, right? So I don't wanna limit anyone's creativity. I don't have a 10-step list for becoming a racially reconciled community. But I do believe that every single person in here, God is calling to that community. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in here. And so the Pentecostal in me wants to be like, all right, let's have altar call. <laughs> so God can tell you his plan for your life. Um, yeah, God is calling us to it. And I don't know what that looks like. I think it looks like a lot of things because America is awfully broken and there's a lot to fix. And I think there's a lot of creative ways to do that. I think the bigger problem is that we haven't chosen to do it. I don't think it's the what. I think that we haven't decided that this is what we're about and this is the hill we're gonna stand on. And I think that's the place we have to get to. Amen. Okay, so we're at time. But I, I just wanna say thank you 
so much. I mean, it, it's a lot little daunting that we don't get that 10 step list, so we can just say, oh, check it out, right? Um, but it's also really liberating to be able to say that we, we can take the first step and that's try, right? right? So um, I, I think that's a perfect note for us to kind of transition on, just to know that like this is a first step, right. and, and it's only the beginning, right? right. Um, so thank you for that, and thank you again for just your honesty, Truthfully, thank you for your honesty because not enough do we have space to just let that honesty be showcased and just like just be in our feelings and right. allow ourselves to feel how we feel, yeah. have that dialogue, and take it there. So we, we value that insight and we also just appreciate you so much for entering into that space with us. And I also want to thank my co panelists for also being courageous and honest. And just with that, um, so 